0: Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship. So excited to be with you this morning. God is doing amazing things in our midst. Amen? Amen. 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 So if you've been with us, you know that we're um, actually, you know what, I have some announcements to make. So ministry team meeting, uh, Monday, November 5th. Very important that everybody who serves at Grace Fellowship Church be at this meeting. This is a time where we'll be communicating a lot of family business. So it doesn't matter if you wash your coffee pot here on Sunday morning, work in the Dream Center, no matter where you are, if you, if you have a stake here, we want you to come to this meeting. And by the way, if you're not on the ministry team, if you don't serve and you're interested in serving, this is also an opportunity for you to come and engage and hear more about some family matters that we'll be talking about moving forward. So really want you to come out for that time. Um, in addition, I want to remind you tonight is our night of worship and prayer. How many people plan on coming? Come on, show of hands. All right, come on now, look. We really want you to come out for the 6.30 tonight. If you can make it, please join us for this time. It's very important for the trajectory of Jay's Grace Fellowship Church that we're together tonight in spirit and in truth, okay? So do all that you can to join us for this important time. Okay, um, as I was saying earlier, we are continuing our series called The Way of the Worshipper, and uh, gosh, we're in week six already. And today we're going to talk about this word, Barak. So before we do, would you be kind enough to join me as I pray for our time? Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness. I acknowledge before you this morning that I have nothing to offer in and of myself, but I have you, and you are everything. So God, we come before you and acknowledge you as everything. Everything that we long for, everything that we need is found in you, so we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Work through us in such a way that we leave this place transformed, different, worshiping you in spirit and in truth, willing to bow down in reverence and submission before you, trusting you as our great king. We thank you, Lord, that we do not belong to a democracy, first and foremost. We belong to a theocracy. You are our king, and we are your servants. We bow before you this morning and acknowledge your great love for us. We ask that you have your will and your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you've been with us, you know our objective is to gain greed or freedom, joy, boldness, confidence in Jesus Christ. That's what we're trusting the Lord for now. The statement that we cannot follow Jesus and remain the same has been cornerstone to where we're going now. That if we're trusting Jesus Christ, if we're following after him, if we're letting him have his way in us, then we are experiencing ongoing transformation. So one of the things I'd ask you first and foremost this morning is, is your life changing? Is your life staying the same? Or do you really sense that somehow, by the grace of God, you're getting closer to Him? If you are getting closer to Him, you will see some fruit. Now, it won't be the kind of fruit that often we expect. Sometimes we think there's these big grandiose things that are going to happen. Sometimes the best fruit is the fruit that just happens over time, a little bit at a time. You know you know you smile at your spouse in the morning before your cup of coffee. Anybody say that's a miracle in and of itself? I mean like come on, you know, like there's transformation of the heart and we've always said here the greatest miracle is a changed life. So the question is is your life changing? The question for me is, is my life changing? And I can say to you this morning that my life is changing. By the grace of God and for the glory of God, my life is changing. I am becoming more sold out for the cause of Christ than I ever have been before. And I pray that's true for you today. So we defined worship as a passionate and loving response to the reality of who God is and who we are in him. All we need to do is see who he is. He needed to pray that God would peel the scales from our eyes, that we would truly see his character, truly see his heart, and know what he's done for us, and then we can't help but respond. The problem is that most of us are sleeping. The problem is that most of us aren't fully awake. I don't think any of us are fully awake because if we were fully awake, we would just like be catapulted into the heavens, don't you think? Like if we were fully awake, we'd be burned up. We'd just go home to be with the Lord. The truth is the scripture tells us that one day you will be fully awake. If you are in Christ Jesus one day, you will fully know, even as you are fully known. But in the meantime... We ask that God would awaken us to the reality of who he is and that we would respond. Now, remember, we're not asking anybody to put anything on. We're not asking you to act all ginned up. We're not not asking you to put on a facade. Lord knows that Jesus wants you to let go of those facades. That takes a lot of energy to maintain a facade. Anybody say amen to that? So look, we, we bleed when you cut us. We cry, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And we know this hope in our heart in such a way that we are inclined to worship God. And so if you've been with us, you know we've been going through these words, Yada, halal, todah, shabbak, barak is where we're gonna land today. And I trust that you're immersing yourself in these, that maybe you have your little refrigerator magnet up at home and then you get up in the morning and maybe you're going through your quiet time in these postures of the heart. But remember, these are not just physical postures. They are postures of the soul. There are ways in which we place ourselves before God to receive his goodness and to respond to his grace. Now, today, we're going to talk about this word, Barak, which means to kneel before God in reverence and submission. Listen to some of the word of God. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel, Barak, before the Lord, our God, our maker. In 1 Chronicles 29, 20, David said to all the assembly, now bless Barak the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed. They kneeled and bowed down. They Barak the Lord and the God of their fathers. They bowed low and they did homage to the Lord and to the king. I will bless Barak the Lord at all times. My praise shall continually be in my mouth. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 96 says, sing to the Lord, praise Barak, his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. And Psalm 103 says, praise Barak, the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise Barak, the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Now, this posture before God, I I would venture to say is probably one of the most important postures that we're looking at through this entire series. To bow down in reverence and submission before our King is often where all the other postures come from. Because this is humility before God. Now, I want to emphasize this again every single one of us in the room, every single one of us in the region, every single one of us in the world is a sinner. What that means is that we fall short of the glory of God. God's standard is perfection. And every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except one man and his name is Jesus Christ. And he was the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. And when we come to God, we have to acknowledge our sinfulness before him and humble ourselves before him. This is called being laid low. And God has a million ways to humble me. Anybody say amen to that? You do not come into the world humble. How many of you have been around little children? Aren't they precious? How many of you have had to, to teach your child to hold on to the ball longer? Don't give the ball away so quickly. Son, hold on to it some more. Now, do you realize that, that children in and of themselves are born stubborn? You know what that means is they're born unwilling to submit. David says, surely I was sinful at birth. You come into this world with a gene in you, a DNA in you. It's called sinfulness. Sinfulness is a disease. It's not an action. It's what's in the members of your body. You were born with sinfulness. That doesn't mean there isn't beauty in children and in innocence in children. It doesn't mean that at all. There is We are all created in the image of God. But we are born sinful with an inclination to rebel. We are rebels in our hearts. So this posture does not come easily to any single one of us. Now, you may kneel and bow down physically easily. Some of us have a hard time with that even, right? But in your heart of hearts, you want to do things your way. I want to do things my way, and my way doesn't work. Anybody say amen to that? Now, if you're kind of like, yeah, well, maybe my way doesn't work, you haven't had enough experience yet. Our ways are not his ways. As far as as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far God's ways are above our ways. And when we come to God in reverence and submission and kneel down before him in this posture of Barak, usually it takes a lot of pain and a lot of struggle to get to a place where we're willing to lay down our ways, lay down our lives before our God and acknowledge his greatness and say, God, have your way in me. Now, the beautiful part of this is that if we do come to the place where we're low enough to look up and where we kneel down before God and we cry out to him and say, God, have your way in me, he writes an incredible, beautiful story of redemption in our lives as he picks us up out of the pit, as he redeems us. So today, I have the honor of introducing to you a precious daughter of the Most High God, Gabrielle Christie, who's going to share a part of her life story with us. Would you please warmly welcome Gabrielle?
1: God speaks us. Oh, good morning, church. Uh, It's such a privilege and an honor to be with you this morning, and every Sunday morning, to be honest. Um, I'm really grateful for... um, how much you've all welcomed me into your family. And um, I'm so grateful to be able to share part of my story with you this morning. Um, First, I just want us to bow. I'm gonna submit to God and just let him kind of guide me. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to share part of what you've done in my life with my family. You alone are worthy of our praise, God. You are beautiful, you are holy. Let my words honor you, Lord. Let my life be glorifying to you, Jesus. We love you, and we're grateful. In your name we pray. Amen. So uh, I was born into a Christian home. Um, I was uh, taught the ways of God from a very young age through scripture memorization and VBS. Like, you name it, I did it. Um, My parents were very involved and active in ministry, um, so I was a church kid. I was raised around the church. Um, I first experienced the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ myself at the age of five and uh, I asked him to come into my heart, and uh, a seed of hope was planted that day. And although I felt the acceptance of God in that moment, uh, I still felt out of place. Even as a really young little girl, um, I felt out of place in the church. My family wasn't well off by any means. Um, I didn't dress like the other kids that I went to school with or church with. We were different, and the enemy used that fact against me, and he began to grow weeds and thickets around my tiny little seed. Now, the devil doesn't want us to know that we're loved and accepted by God, and he will do anything in his power to make us forget that truth. So those weeds and thickets grew around my heart, and the loneliness and rejection that I felt grew into a deep depression that would follow me throughout my adolescent years and well into my adult life. And as I felt so lonely and out of place, I became attracted to the kids and the people that I saw around me who didn't care what other people thought of them. They had been given up on. They were the rebels. They were the outcasts. Because in my mind, I was an outcast too. And, you know, maybe if I could fit in with them, I would feel like I finally belonged somewhere. If I wasn't good enough for God anymore, I felt like I didn't fit the mold. Um, my parents were working through um, their own problems, and you know, I felt like I had already burdened them enough, and um, I kind of just decided to go off on my own. I felt like a loser, and I would rather be a loser trying to make my own way than a loser in front of the church. So at the age of 14, um, I started using drugs regularly, um, got into drinking, partying, you name it. I ran to it, um, and not because it made me feel better. It actually made me feel much, much worse. Um, but I became so ashamed of how far that I had come from my parents' teaching and from God that I just kept going further and further out because I, I just felt so rejected. I felt like I wasn't good enough. Time after time, I would allow vices to numb me, for people to use me over and over again, and every time I would be more broken than before, so alone and just feeling like there was no way that God could possibly look at me and love me again. I felt like the prodigal son that I had learned about in in Sunday school, out in the world, dirty and ashamed, but I didn't know if I could make it home. The cycle continued well into my 20s um, through the death of my father, uh, continuing in every new town and every new city that I ran to in an attempt to start my life over again, Uh, I tried going back to church multiple times, but every time I just felt like the black sheep. I felt so dirty and unclean. I still didn't fit into everybody. I looked less like them than I had before. You know, I was covered in tattoos and, you know, had my punk rock patches on, and I just felt so different, and I was like, okay, this isn't where I belong, but something in my heart just cried out. For God, because I I knew Him. I had known Him as a child, and part of me still longed for that connection with Him. So, fast forward to uh, February of 2014, um, after years of of drug use and um, depression and anxiety, um, I had come to the end of my rope. Um, I was in another new city, and I was trying to get my life right. I was in college, and um, I was just so tired. I was just so tired of the voices that tormented me day in and day out. I was so tired of not being good enough. I was so tired of being empty. And one day, I was uh, at the train station at the platform, um, like I did every day after class, and I was waiting for the train. And the thought occurred to me that there was going to be a train coming through that wasn't going to stop. And in that moment, the voices that had followed me my whole life just started roaring just kill yourself, no one's gonna know that you're gone, no one's gonna care, you're ugly, you're dirty, no one loves you, and they were screaming at me and all I wanted them was to stop. So I started walking towards the edge of the platform. There was no one around me, it was still, but in my mind it was loud. And in my heart, that little seed that had been planted as a child started burning inside me like a beacon and shot through my head and just cried out to God as the voices got louder and louder, and I took my final step, and all of a sudden, I felt a pressure on my chest, like a hand, and I looked and there was no one around me, and the train stopped, the voices were silent, and for the first time in over a decade, I had peace and quiet, and I knew that that was God. So I got on the train, I sat down, I rode in silence all the way home, and got to my apartment. Once I had closed and locked the door, I just fell to my knees. And I said, Jesus, I need you. Please save my life. And it was in that moment that I first experienced Barak. I first experienced what it felt like to truly submit to God, to surrender all the baggage and heartache and pain and abuse and anger that I was carrying, and just give a damn. And from that moment, everything changed. Not right away. I'd like to say that everything was sunshine and roses, and you know, I was this beautiful, perfect, happy Christian. I'm still not a perfect, happy Christian. <laughs> um but over the the following months i you know all of a sudden i didn't I did not want to drink anymore i had been going to church and um you know being around other christians and you know i was experiencing healing both physically and emotionally and i um it's it like you know i really want to you know i really wanted to stop smoking weed that was my last front that was like the first thing that started everything when i was a teenager And that was my last, my last bit of something that I was holding on to, because I was afraid to not have that anymore. And when I finally decided to stop relying on weed more than I was relying on God, I went to a pastor and I told him what I was struggling with, and I asked him to break it off of me, which is an incredibly humbling experience, because going to your pastor and being like, hey, I smoke weed all the time, (laughs) and he's like, no judgment, praise over me. And I remember going home that night and, you know, packing up, um, you know, all my paraphernalia and and my box, and um, he's like, I mean, I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to be done with it. And it was in that moment that I realized what a hold that had on my life. Because as I walked out of my apartment and down the hallway, it was like I was wearing cement shoes. Like, I couldn't, I was struggling to walk, and I felt like there was... Like claws in my arms, I felt like just weighed down, and I'm trudging, and I'm crying, and I in that moment I felt like I was holding a child. Like I, I was like, I, I don't know if I can let go of this, and my spirit's crying out to God, and it was a very similar situation to the the train platform, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm calling out to God. I'm like, Jesus, I need you, please send your angels. Like I can't do this by myself. And I remember getting to the garbage compactor slot and having that one second where I was like, you can choose to not do this. And I was like, no, I know what that looks like. I don't want that anymore. And I remember putting it in the slot. I did not do it myself. (laughs) And as soon as it disappeared in the chute, like everything was gone. And thank you, Jesus. Um, a couple months later, I went into a recovery program. I spent eight months in recovery and um, learned how to give the pain and, and everything that I had been trying to escape. I learned how to give that to Jesus. I learned how to forgive myself and a lot of other people. Um, and at the end of that program, I expected to feel, you know, free and light as a bird. But I actually went into a very deep depression. Only this time, I didn't have any of my vices to comfort me and to numb me. And um, this continued, um, you know, off and on for, you know, up until about last year. And I was like, God, why am I going through this? And, you know, initially, you know, the enemy tried to use that against me and be like, you know, you're still holding on to something or you're doing something wrong or, um, you know, but through through that time, as agonizing as it was, you know, like even at points feeling suicidal and feeling like I should just, you know, I should have made that decision a long time ago choosing over and over again to submit to God, to surrender to him, to bring him my darkness, to bring him my pain, and to speak truth into myself that he, Jesus Christ himself, experienced incredible sorrow here on earth. He understood, he understands my sorrow. And allowing him into that has been the most incredible thing that I've ever experienced. It's been painful, it's been agonizing, um, there's been times where I'm like, God, I, don't, I can't handle this. But every time in each valley, he's met me there. And he's brought me out on the other side into a deeper intimacy with him, into a deeper knowledge of my, my identity with him, into that acceptance, into knowing that there's nothing that I could do that would separate me from his love. This year I celebrated four years of sobriety. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I celebrated over two years of marriage to an incredibly godly, encouraging, amazing, and very good-looking man who is sitting back there. Um, I have been married and very blessed to have uh, in-laws and family who have accepted me and loved me as their own blood. Um, I have a church that I can go to every day, and like, you know, every Sunday and every day in my mind, and worship with you guys, you know, I'm being so blessed, and I'm so grateful for everything that God's doing. Um, life's still difficult at times. Marriage is difficult at times. You know, there's, there's days that, you know, are a little darker than others. You know, there's times where the enemy tries to use my past against me. He tries to keep me from returning to that posture of, of Barak with God but I am equipped now with the knowledge that the battle has already been won, that depression and anxiety don't own me anymore. They have no hold on me. And in those moments, I remember a verse that was um, repeated to me as I was um, coming back to Jesus. And that is Romans eight, verses one and two. And it says, therefore there is no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life he gives us life and he sets us free from the law of sin and death. And I own that. The worship posture of Barak is one that I am honored to take before God, one that has brought me healing and restoration, forgiveness, redemption, acceptance. But above all, it bestows God bestows upon God the adoration and the glory that he so rightly deserves. Because it's really not all, it's not about us. Submitting to God isn't about us and what we get from it, it's what God gets from it. Jesus Christ saved my life, and I will live the rest of my days on my knees before him. Thank you.
0: Gabrielle, thank you so much for your courage and your strength and your willingness to share your story with us today. Um, God indeed is glorified in you, sister. So as we look a little bit more at this posture before God today, I want to turn to um, the story um, in the scripture again of Daniel. We haven't looked at this story, but we're looking at an Old Testament story, and so today if you want to open your Bibles to Daniel, I'm first going to talk you through Um, chapters 1 through 5, and then we're going to land in chapter 6. And I want you to know that this same Jesus that saved Gabrielle, and who saved me, and who saved you, is present in this story. You see, God is uh, amazing how he weaves and writes stories together. And it's unmistakable when you see the presence of God in a story, whether that's a life story that's right in front of you, like Gabrielle's, or a story from the scripture of an old brother named Daniel who we'll see someday together in heaven. It's the same God who's weaving the story together. It's his story. By the way, that's what history means, is his story. And he is the one who is writing a story in you and me. And I do pray that you are learning to refine telling people the story for his glory. So today, I want to look at with you with the Daniel, uh, Daniel chapters 1 through 5. Now, there's something called a guiding hermeneutic in Scripture, and I want you to understand that word. Hermeneutics is nothing more than how to understand or exegete the word of God. How do you actually encounter God in his word and understand it? That study is called hermeneutics. So those of us who went to seminary, we took a class in hermeneutics. I took semesters in hermeneutics. And I want to say, apart from the Holy Spirit, there's no way that you can understand the word of God. And by the way, there are many people who are theologically trained up to their teeth who, who miss what people with the Holy Spirit get. So there's no, there's no um, you know, MDiv. Jesus didn't have an Div. He didn't have a PhD in theology. He was God. <laughs> you know, like, like that trumps everything. And that God that, 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 was, that he is, he lives in you. So he trumps everything. Like when you go to the word of God, the spirit of God reveals the truth of God to you. The question is, are you going? The question is, are you bowing down? Are you submitting yourself to him in reverence and in awe? So I've been devouring scripture recently in a way that's kind of unprecedented for my life. i got something called a reading Bible. It's a four-volume set. I have one that's a four-volume set and a six-volume set. It takes all the chapters and all the verses out. There's no verse numbers. There's no cross-references. There's no anything. It's just a story. It's the Bible. And I'm reading it and devouring it in books like books, you know, and I just love that. Like I love studying and I love exegeting the scripture and and taking apart the scripture, but this is just immersing myself right now in books and books and books of the scripture and just reading, reading, and I love, love how I'm encountering God. So I'm gonna attempt to summarize Daniel 1 through 5 for you, but this is quite a ride, so pray for me that I don't keep you past lunch, okay? So you know, Daniel is a Jew, and he lives among other Jews. And in chapter 1, it says here, In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, is a bad guy, king of Babylon, that's a, that's a, um, a, a kind of culture given over to idolatry, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, um, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Okay, so in other words, you have this Babylonian king coming in in chapter 1 and taking over Judah. And the king gave an order to go and find now, since they've conquered all of Judah, find the best young men that Judah has to offer. The smartest, the strongest, the studliest, those that look really buff, like bring them to me. Because I want to use these guys It says, young men without any physical defect, handsome, this is verse four, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And among those chosen um, were some from Judah, Daniel, uh, Jehanahai, Meshiel, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. Daniel, we know their names. This way, he gave the name Belshazzar. And to the others, he gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You could call them Rack, Shack, and Benny, say that. Rack, Shack, and Benny. If you're familiar with the Tales story, that's what they're called, Rack, Shack, and Benny. So our boy Danny, he was devoted, devoted to God. Now, look, when we talk about guiding hermeneutics, when you read Scripture, you want to trust God to reveal to you passages that jump off the page and define the rest. So, like, I'll tell you one of my guiding hermeneutics for reading the whole of the Bible And it's something Gabrielle knows deep in her heart, which is God is love. Say that after me. God is love. This book is a love letter. You would be amazed at how many Christians, professing Christians I run into, who do not know that God is love. They read the scripture with an intonation of a God who wants to batter us rather than save us. This God is a God of love, and that is a guiding hermeneutic from the beginning to the end of the book, and from the beginning to the end of time. God loves you so much. His love for you is so deep. His love endures forever as high as the heavens are above the earth. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You need to understand that about him. His heart is for you. It's not against you. See, this is a guiding hermeneutic that we need to understand. And in the book of Daniel, I want to point out to you that chapter 1, verse 8, is kind of a guiding hermeneutic for Daniel's life. He resolved that he would not defile himself. Daniel knew that he was loved by God. He knew there was nothing else that could satisfy the deepest longings of his soul. And he says, I refuse to give myself over to anything but him. I resolve. That is dedication unto the Lord. That dedication doesn't come often without a lot of pain and we don't know a lot about Daniel's formation but I can guess that he was a man acquainted with pain. (laughs) I can guess that because he is resolved to not bow down to anything but God. So he says here, yeah, but he resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food and with the wine that he drank. See, what happened was, they said, well, you can take these guys, and we're going to build them up with all this rich food. But this rich food was against God's will for Daniel's life based on the law that he ascribed to, the law that he submitted himself to. So he said rather kindly, I don't really want to eat this stuff. And so the guy who was in charge of this, he comes to him. This is my paraphrase, by the way. I'm not quoting scripture here. But he got, the guy who was in charge says, I'm really afraid of the king. Like, uh, I don't want you guys withering away to nothing. And he's going to look at you and say, you're emaciated because you're not eating all his rich food. And Daniel said, look, let's put us to the test. Give us nothing but vegetables and water for 10 days. And if we don't look super studly and buff by the end of that time, like, you know, our God's going to do this for us. So that's what happens. He actually refuses the food. And the guy comes back and finds him. And he goes, oh, my gosh. Like, Dan- yeah, right. Daniel, Daniel's God is God. Which is always what we come from this whole thing is Daniel's God is God. You're going to see that time and time and time again that Daniel's God is God. And so going into chapter 2, we now have King Nebuchadnezzar and he has this dream In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers. He's actually turning himself over to these that are satanically connected. This is really what's going on here. And he says, "Uh, tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And he says, "Uh, no, I firmly decided that they actually have to tell me not only what the dream means, but what the dream is. Now, can you imagine, like, somebody coming to you and saying, hey, would you be willing to interpret my dream? And you go, well, I'll give it a shot. And you go, well, I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is. You've got to tell me what the dream is. And these guys start to shake in their boots. And they say, there is no one on earth that can do what the king asks. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. At you hear what they're saying They do not long know but it's Daniel. Daniel there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, their God is the one true God. And they know that God does live among them, and God does speak to them. So the king became so angry and furious that these guys said they can't do this. He ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. Just kill them all. Just kill them all, because nobody can tell me my dream. This is pretty disturbing, do you not think? By the way, when it says the wise men, these guys, magi... Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the line of the magi, the wise men. So at this time, Daniel went to the king, and he asked for a time so that he might interpret the dream. Well, (laughs) I guess so. He said, give me a little time. And so he urged Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, please, for mercy from God. He asked God for mercy. You see, he wouldn't bow down to the king, but he went to his king, and he pleaded for mercy. And he had them cry out to his God. And Daniel was not only able to interpret Neb's dream, but he told him the meaning. You see, God revealed this to him. And Daniel responded, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his alone. So Daniel comes and tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And he tells him the dream, and not only that, he tells him what it means. And what it means is not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. And so Neb seems to come around because he fell prostrate before Daniel and hearing the dream and paid him honor, and he ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And he said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of the gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer from mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery to me. And Daniel was given a high position. In chapter 3, we read this statue of gold, and there's a fiery furnace. And if you know what's going on here, there's this, there's this, this um, statue of gold that's built, and all these guys around, Neb says, hey, make a command that all everybody bows down to this thing. And so they bow down to this thing, except who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Of course, Daniel, but he's not in the story at this point in time. And... So there's a bunch of people that get filled with rage around Nebuchadnezzar because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow down, will not barak themselves before this idol. They refuse. Here's the whole theme of the book of Daniel. They refuse to bow down to anything or anyone but God. Now, I want to ask you something, and I want to tell you something. You were made to bow down. You are created to surrender and submit yourself to someone and someone. But the question is not really whether or not you're bowing down. The question is, who or what are you bowing down to? Because that's really the truth of who you are. You're always bowing down to someone or something. And so here we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say this, look, we're not going to bow down to this thing. And Zeb says, you know, you're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace. And they said then your god will have to save you it says but if you do not worship you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace then what god will be able to rescue and listen to what they say king nebuchadnezzar this is in verse 16 we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter that's rather bold isn't it isn't that strong do you not want to be that strong in the face of adversity King Nebuchadnezzar, with all due respect, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, for if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from their majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know something, your majesty. We will not serve or bow down to your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up, period. Do you hear the strength? Do you hear the conviction? Do you hear the commitment that says, we will not? So what does Nabs do? He gets really ticked off. And he fires up the furnace seven times hotter than it usually is. There's that number seven again. Seven times hotter. And then what happens is the guys that are actually tending the furnace burn up and die because it's too flipping hot now. So he throws these three guys in the furnace And he looks in and what does he see? Four guys. Who's that fourth guy? That's Jesus Christ. A lot of people believe it's Jesus Christ. Some people interpret it as an angel. I I tend to believe it's our Lord. I tend to believe that. And then (laughs) he says, look, I see four men walking around in a fire. This is verse 25, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth one looks like the son of God. All right, that sounds like Jesus, right? Then Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 28, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubber. Why are you kings just like going to wipe everybody out? For no other god can save in this way can we just say that no other god can save in the way that gabrielle was saved no other god can save that way all other gods are little g's this is our this is the one true god these three along with David refused to bow down to these earthly kings and their earthly desires they refused to worship the things and kings of this world and they posed with courage and the ability that far surpasses all around them in chapter 4 neb nebuchadnezzar I call him nebs he had a dream of a tree and this, he was lying. He says, In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice Cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruits. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots Bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let, this be, um, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. There's this seven times again. So Nebs comes to Daniel with his dream And Daniel's rather upset what he hears from God. But Ned says, spit it out, Daniel. Come on, give it to me. Give me the straight truth here. And so Daniel comes forth and he says, hey, king, sorry, but you're the tree. And the command to leave the stump with its roots means that your kingdom will one day be restored, but only when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Don't you think Nebuchadnezzar would have got it by now? He's been through all this stuff. Don't you think he would have got it by now? But then you ask yourself, Don't you think I should have gotten it by now? Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. He's saying, bow down, king. Barak, before the one true king. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the press. It may be then that your prosperity will continue, but Nebs is a very slow learner, just like us. And one year later, he's walking on his roof, and this is what he says. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Do you hear it? What's that called? Pride. Daniel said to him, Dude, humble yourself. Barak, bow down before the one king of heaven. And here's Nebuchadnezzar still walking around in pride, even after he's seen all these miracles. And what happens, even as the words were on his lip, a voice came from heaven and said, this is what I decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And if you know what happens, he's driven out to the field and he grows claws like an animal and hair all over his body. And for seven years, he is laid low. He's like an insane person out in fields eating grass. For seven years. And at one point, He humbles himself before God. He comes to the end of himself. And if you look at the end of that chapter, it says these words, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven. For everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Barak. Like, here's the choice. You and I get to Barak now, or we get forced to Barak later on. But Barak is not an option. The question is, what are you bowing down to? Who are you bowing down to? There's only one who's going to bring life to you. There's only one who's going to bring restoration to you. There's only one who's going to be bringing undying love to you. And that's the God of heaven. Chapter 5, we see the writing on the wall. This is Baal He's Neb's son. You think he would have known the stories? I'm sure he did, but he didn't really get the point, so he's thrown a shindig for all the nobles. This human hand comes up, starts writing this magical writing on the wall. It scares the Beelzebub out of this guy. He calls for all astrologers, and guess what? No one can tell him what it means. The queen, his wife, reminds him, uh, hey, hubby, there's this guy in the kingdom named Danny, and he used to help your dad out. Like He's really wise. And so he calls for Daniel, and he offers him all these goodies to do this thing. And Daniel says, uh, you can keep your gifts for yourself. I don't really want those. And give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king, and I will tell him what it means. People that bow down before God, they they can turn away the goodies of the world. Because they know everything pales in comparison. So Daniel reminds this guy, um, Belshazzar, of his dad who was humbled. And he says to him, you haven't humbled yourself. You haven't bowed before God. You haven't bowed down before him. Here he said what these words mean. He said, mene, that means God has numbered your days, the days of your reign, and they will be brought to an end. Tekel, that means you will be weighed on the stales you have, and you have been found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is to be divided among the Medes and the Persians. And that night, this dude died. The theme of this book is that Daniel and his friends refuse to bow down before these kings and worship, and as a result, they are able to rise above even the greatest of circumstances and have the ability to see what others do not see. I'm trying to push this, and it ain't working, so somebody maybe move that slide for me to the next one. So I want to give you a couple points from the book of Daniel if I can get to the next slide. There we go. First one, here's the first one. Submission and reverence before God are the keys to strength and perseverance. Would you say that out loud with me? Submission and reverence before God are the keys to strength and perseverance. You see, when we come to Daniel 6, we hear this verse, which is another guiding hermeneutic for the whole of the book. Now, when Daniel learned that the degree had been published, we're going to talk about that in a second, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees He bowed down before God three times a day and he prayed to God, just like he had done before. What does this communicate to us? This communicates to us that Daniel lived a lifestyle of submission and reverence before God. The question is, are you and I, are we living that way? Because this is what made the whole thing work. It was his God who he was bowing down to. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus has asked really only one thing to be taught by his disciples. His disciples come to him and at one point they say, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Now look, you know, Jesus was doing incredible things. I mean, he was performing miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick. You know, the blind were being healed so they could see. And he didn't ask him to teach him to do any of those things. He said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Now, you, know why? you know why I think that disciple asked Jesus that? Because they were watching his life. And you know what they said? When they'd look for him, where would they often find him? Off praying. Jesus regularly withdrew to a place of quiet and solitude to Barak. Now, this is God incarnate. If God incarnate needs to live a life of submission and reverence before his God, how much more so do we? You see, these guys, they watched it and they went, I I think that's the engine that makes all this stuff go. And if you want to read the book of Daniel, can I tell you, this is probably the most important verse in all the book of Daniel. Because it's pointing to the posture of the soul that Daniel took, where he kneeled in reverence and submission before his God. This produces strength and perseverance in us too. Whatever godly attributes that we see in Daniel, we see in Jesus Christ one millionfold. I am not encouraging you to be a follower of Daniel. I'm encouraging you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You see, everything in Scripture points to the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to open your Bibles to chapter 6. This is Daniel in the lion's den. And we're going to walk through this together. And i got to guarantee you, um, you're going to see Jesus in this (laughs) with me. I'm still ablaze. I've been studying the Scripture for years, okay? I open the Bible, and I'm like, how come I never saw that before? And God says, well, you weren't ready to or you weren't awake enough, and I'm showing it to you now. And can I tell you something? Whenever I see Jesus in Scripture, I just want to bow down. Whenever I see God revealing himself and knitting together this incredible story of his son, I just want to bow down. So this is Daniel in the lion's den. A lot of people know this story because how many people heard it as a kid? Can I tell you something? This is not a kid's story. You know, we read our kids, hey, let's sit down and read the kids Noah. Yeah, where God wiped out the entire population with a flood. You know, like these stories are stories for us, for all of us. It pleased Darius, who was the king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom and three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. Because Daniel, see, had this reputation as a godly man, as one who had wisdom. The satraps were more accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. Stop. Jesus Christ is given the whole kingdom. You'll see it more. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. There's a group of them that are looking to conspire against Daniel. Now, by the way, this is what the Jews did against Jesus. You'll continue to see it unfold. But they were unable to do so. Why? Because they could find no corruption in him. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He is the spotless lamb of God because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. That might have been true of Daniel's character, but we know he was still a sinner. But we know for 100% that's true of Jesus Christ. There's a plot against him. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of God. What were the charges levied against Jesus Christ? You claim to be God. Caiaphas actually rips his robe, accuses him of blasphemy, breaking the law of God. And Caiaphas and the Jews, they go to who? To Pilate. And so these administrators and satraps, they went together as a group to the king. And they said, may King Darius live forever. And I'm sure these Jews were probably saying the same thing to Pilate. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or any human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Stop. Now look. look. What was happening at the time of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion is that Pilate represented Caesar, and Caesar was seen as God. And as a Roman, you couldn't bow to anyone or anything except Caesar. You were supposed to baroque yourself before Caesar all day. And what did the Jews go to Pilate and say? This guy's claiming to be God. And what they're trying to say is he's going against Caesar. you got to do something about it. Your majesty, those should be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issue the decree and put in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Can I tell you something? God's will will never be stopped. So King Darius put the decree into writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Where was home for Jesus? The scripture says he had no home. But I'll tell you where they found him. They found him in the garden praying most of the time. And leading up his crucifixion, you know how many times he prayed? He prayed three times leading up to his crucifixion in the garden at Gethsemane. Then these men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and and asking God for help. Here's Judas and the soldiers coming along, trying to find Jesus. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about the royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you your majesty, or to the decrees that you put in writing, he still prays to his God three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. Do you know Pilate was sickened in soul? facing this decision as to whether or not he was going to crucify Jesus, which is what the Jews wanted to be done. Do you know what Pilate did? Because it says here he was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. Pilate put Barabbas before the crowd, and he put Jesus before the crowd, and he said, look, I'll give you one of these guys. And I'm sure Pilate's going, this is a no-brainer. They're going to pick Jesus and let me crucify Barabbas, because Barabbas is a hardened criminal. And you know what the crowd says? Crucify crucify him, give us Barabbas, and Pilate becomes more and more soul sick as he watches this whole drama unfold before him, just as this king was with Daniel, and the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed, so the king gave the order And they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den, just like they brought Jesus and nailed him to a cross. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Now listen to this a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. What does that sound like to you? Folks, can I help you understand something? This is written about 600 to 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ walking our our planet. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring. What does that sound like to you? Do you know that the grave of Jesus Christ had a big stone rolled in front of it and it had a Roman seal placed on it? He placed this with a ring of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to the palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. That's Pilate. Remember, Pilate's wife is saying, Dude, have nothing to do with this. Wash your hands of this man's blood. And Pilate's freaking out over the whole thing. And listen to verse 19, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. Who's that? That's Mary and others with her possibly. And when he came near the den, he called out to Daniel on an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel. Can I ask, who was attending Jesus Christ at his death and his burial? Angels. Mary found angels there. He says, He shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent as sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you. This is the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The king was overjoyed. (laughs) This is like this is us. This is us being overjoyed with the fact that He is risen. Can you say that with me? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Like this story was written in the scriptures 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. God was preparing the hearts of his people. His story is all over the place. And he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And When Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. You know, Jesus Christ came from the den of the tomb. Truth is, he chose to re- remain scarred i got to be honest with you, Jesus Christ probably was one of the most disfigured men in all of history because he was beaten with a cat of nine tails, you know. He, He was scourged. And if you really knew what that was, if we had time to go into that, you wouldn't know the brutality of what he was subjected to. He was kicked. He was spit on. He had a crown of thorns stuffed over his head. He bled. He bled his blood for you and me. But when Jesus shows up after the resurrection... It says that he retained certain scars. Now, if you understand covenant cutting, which means something that tribal people did all the time, they would actually cut their wrists, and they would put, uh, in the modern cultures, gunpowder, but in ancient cultures, other substances there. Why? So the wound would become pronounced. Why would the wound want to become pronounced? Because if anybody ever doubted if the covenant had been cut, they would just go to the covenant representative, and they'd say, show him your scar. Hold a scar up like that. There it is. Covenant was cut. You know what the scripture says? Jesus showed them his scars and they were overwhelmed with joy. You see, Jesus Christ is throughout the whole of the scriptures and there was no wounds found on Daniel but they wounds that Jesus kept and at the king's command, the men who falsely accused Daniel who were brought and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children and before they reached the floor of the den, the liven's overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That is the fate of every person who does not put their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the people of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of the kingdom, Dan- people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and the earth and he rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This is the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is the king that will reign supremely one day when every knee will bow, Barak, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I recommend that we take a knee today. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back out. As you do, I'd ask you to stand to your feet. If you feel so inclined to find a little space somewhere, you can kneel, you can do that too. Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. Father, we thank you that your word is alive. No man could ever write a book like this. God, you are the one who is writing your story in every heart and in every mind, in every mouth that will bow down before you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our sister Gabrielle. We praise you, Lord, for the way in which you put a new song in her mouth and in her heart. And you are writing a story, Lord God, of redemption and salvation in her and in each one of us, Lord Jesus, who bows down before you. Thank you, Lord God, for Daniel, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who have gone before us in faith and who lived a life of reverence and submission before you. But Lord God, We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. who bowed down and gave his life on a cross, became obedient even to death, death on a cross, that we now have life in him. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, in light of what you've done for us, Help us to bow down in reverence and submission and give everything back to you. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said.